All right, well, let's get started. Good morning and welcome back to Sunday School. We are in the book of Exodus right now, and we're continuing to see God's purposes in history unfold and ultimately culminate in our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the promised seed all the way declared back in Genesis. Now, last week we saw God unleash nine mighty plagues on Egypt, and this week we are looking at the final climactic plague. This 10th plague that God sends against stubborn Pharaoh and his people, Egypt, is an extremely important event. It's extremely important for us to understand because God is going to continue to make reference to it throughout the scriptures. Indeed, all the things that we've been seeing in Exodus, they are always, or they are so many times referenced in the rest of the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's a very important event in the history of the world. So what happened in the 10th plague? How did God instruct Israel to memorialize it? And how does what happened then actually connect to Jesus Christ and realities in the New Testament? That's what we're talking about today. Let's pray and then we'll learn more about it. Our gracious God, we thank you for your word. It is what gives us light. It is the foundation for all truth. I pray God should be able that you would enable me to explain it well, accurately, clearly, and God, that you would transform your people through it. That is what your word is meant to do. And so, Spirit, I pray that you would do that even now in this hour. In Jesus' name, amen. Please take your Bibles and open to Exodus chapter 11. Exodus 11 is page 67 if you're using the few Bibles. This is where we're starting our study of the final plague. And just to remind you of the context as we come into Exodus 11, Moses and Aaron have just been speaking with Pharaoh after the ninth plague. You remember the ninth plague? That was the plague of darkness. This was a, uh, a terrible plague. And afterwards, Pharaoh did offer to let the people go, but only if they would leave their livestock behind. But when Moses refuses, says, not a hoof shall be left behind, Pharaoh gives a death threat to Moses. He says, don't ever come back into my presence because when you do, you will die. But their conversation is not over. Chapter 11 begins with a little parenthetical information, and then it resumes the conversation between Moses and Pharaoh. So this is taking place on the tail end of the ninth plague. So let's look at Exodus 11 verses 1 to 10. Here's what it says. Now the Lord, because it's all caps, that is Yahweh. Now Yahweh said to Moses, one more plague I will bring on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out from here completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people, that each man ask from his neighbor and each woman from her neighbor for articles of silver and articles of gold. Yahweh gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Furthermore, the man Moses himself was greatly esteemed in the land of Egypt, both in the sight of Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. Moses said, Thus says Yahweh, About midnight I am going out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the millstones, all the firstborn of the cattle as well. Moreover, there shall be a great cry in all the land of Egypt, such as there has not been before and such as shall never be again. But against any of the sons of Israel, a dog will not even bark, whether against man or beast, that you may understand how Yahweh makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these, your servants, will come down to me and bow themselves before me, saying, Go out you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, so that my wonders will be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, yet Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the sons of Israel go out of his land. All right, let's start with, as always, 
using our Bible study method, basic observations of this passage. So this is kind of preparatory for the 10th plague. Notice that God declares in verse 1 that this will be the last plague. After this, God says, he declares, he foretells, Pharaoh will not only let the people go, but he will drive them out. Notice in verse 2, God calls on the people of Israel to ask the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold. Talk to your neighbors, ask for their treasures. That may sound like a very strange direction. I mean, could you imagine going up to your neighbors and asking them if they have any gold or silver jewelry that they would want to give you? If you did this, they would probably laugh at you or they would call the police. But the Egyptians, they've, they're in a slightly different situation. They've been seeing God's wondrous acts on behalf of Israel for many months. And they're just about to suffer the 10th plague from God. Verse 3 even says that God gave the people and Moses favor inside of the Egyptians. So the response that Israel will get when asking for the treasures of their Egyptian neighbors is going to be a little different. Notice in verse 4, we hear what the 10th plague is. It is the death of all Egyptian firstborn children and cattle. Now remember the concept of the firstborn in ancient times. It specifically has to do with male offspring and heirs. You see, the firstborn was not merely the first child to come out of a mother's womb. It was the oldest surviving male child and the heir to the household. So the firstborn was precious to the family. It was valued. It was a symbol of joy and strength. But God says, I'm going to strike down all Egyptian firstborn. And he announces when this plague will come, about midnight. Of course, they didn't have clocks or watches back then, but sometime in the middle of the night, God is going to act. And notice in verse 4, God speaks about how, or rather who specifically will accomplish this plague. Notice it says that Yahweh himself will go out. Of course, Yahweh has been involved in all these plagues, but there's a special emphasis on his personal involvement in this last one. And notice in verse 6, the effect of this mass death of firstborn, what will it will be in Egypt? God says a great cry. He will cause a great cry to go up. He says it'll be like nothing before and nothing after. And that's an idiomatic expression in Hebrew to talk about a special, unique event. Not always literally true, but saying this is a once-in-an-age kind of event, a once-in-an-age kind of tragedy. That cry that comes out of Egypt is going to be extremely unique. This is going to be an intense sorrow in Egypt. But contrasting so much, according to verse 7, with what Israel will experience. None of the Israelite firstborn will die, and it says not even a dog will bark against Israel. A dog will not bark to scare, annoy, or even awaken an Israelite. Now, I don't know if you live in an area where dogs bark a lot. We have some dogs near us that every time an ambulance or a fire truck goes by, they just all erupt in barking and howling. <clears throat> but God says that's not even going to happen for the people of Israel. There won't even be a dog barking against them, even though for the Egyptians, they will lose their firstborn. Now, why this contrast? God says specifically in our text in verse 7, Moses speaking to Pharaoh, that you may understand how Yahweh makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Now, don't forget, at the beginning of all this, back in chapter 5, Pharaoh said that he did not know who Yahweh was and was not going to obey him. Well, Pharaoh has learned a whole lot about who Yahweh is now and is about to learn even more. Yahweh makes a distinction. In verse 8, Moses foretells what the ultimate response of Pharaoh via his servants will be. Pharaoh's servants will come and bow themselves before Moses and tell Moses to leave the land with all of Israel. Notice that it's only at this utterance that Moses turns to leave. And the text tells us he went out in hot anger. It's kind of an interesting detail. After this latest prophecy and warning given by God to Pharaoh via Moses and Aaron, notice again what God says to Moses afterwards in verse 9. He says, Pharaoh will not listen to your warning. And he tells him why. This is so I can multiply my, sh my signs and wonders in Egypt. And this is consistent, 
according to verse 10, with what's been happening the whole time. We've seen this, right? God says, you're going to keep coming to Pharaoh. He's not going to listen to you. But that's so I can show forth my mighty power in Egypt. God was hardening Pharaoh's heart for God's glory. Now, having made these basic observations from the plain details of the text, let's now turn to interpretation, our second step. I have a couple questions I think it would be good for us to consider from the passage. First, leaving aside for the moment the God-ordained outcome of this meeting of Moses and Pharaoh, we should ask, why does God send Moses to Pharaoh? What's the purpose? What would you say? Yeah, I'm not looking for a super uh, deep answer here, but that's exactly it. Yeah, to get the people out of Egypt. Confront Pharaoh, say you need to let the people go. And we could add maybe a little bit more. We could say he's rebuking Pharaoh for his sin. You have been stubborn and prideful and evil in the way you treated Israel and not letting them go. It's to warn Pharaoh of what is to come so that he might see and repent. He should change his mind, change his behavior before God, get on God's side now. And if Pharaoh doesn't, by Moses coming to Pharaoh, it will cause Pharaoh to know when the judgment comes, why it came. This is because you did not listen to the voice of God via his prophet. Now, with these purposes to bring Israel out of Egypt, to confront Pharaoh in his sin, to warn him of what's to come, is God being gracious to Pharaoh? Of course he is. To declare the truth and to warn of judgment, that is a gracious thing for God to do. But God knows that Pharaoh will not listen. In fact, as we've seen, God ultimately causes Pharaoh not to listen. So we might also ask, why bother sending Moses to Pharaoh? I mean, you already know he's not going to listen. You've caused it. What's the point? Now, how do we answer this question? Yeah, Roy. Okay, ultimately, this is going to be about God displaying his glory, even in this interaction between Moses and Pharaoh. What? Why else? Yeah, Steve. Or, sorry, go ahead. All right, so this is to show something to Pharaoh. And I think you could even say this is to expose Pharaoh's heart. Steve, what were you going to say? Right. Right. Good. I think you're already moving in the direction that I'm ultimately want to take, wanting it to take us. To meditate more on this connection between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. God is a God who uses means. And Moses is being used by God as an important means here. God is showing goodness to Pharaoh here. This is a gracious thing for God to do. He is exposing Pharaoh's heart, his evil, stubborn heart. And he is glorifying himself by announcing beforehand what will happen. Now, I know we've been talking about this a lot, but it's just so much on display in this section of the scripture. God's sovereignty, even in ordaining evil and the disobedient responses of people like Pharaoh. I want to emphasize again, God is being good to Pharaoh by giving Pharaoh an opportunity to repent before devastating judgment comes. If Pharaoh responds, and he has the choice to respond here, Pharaoh and his people will be spared. They will be saved from judgment. The fact that Pharaoh does not respond in light of the terrible judgments already suffered by Egypt, and in light of the clear display that God, Yahweh, is the true God, and he has the power, it shows Pharaoh to be foolish, sinful, stubborn, proud. And it shows that God's judgment on Pharaoh is justified. Now, someone might still say, but how could Pharaoh have done any differently? 
Who can resist a sovereign God's will? If he ordained Pharaoh to resist, if he hardened Pharaoh's heart, then God really caused Pharaoh to sin. In other words, it's not Pharaoh's fault. And this is the same theoretical objection raised against God's sovereignty in Romans 9. Why does God find fault for who can resist his will? Now, Paul has a certain response there. But I'm just going to speak generally about how the scriptures respond. We cannot go this direction and say, well, it's not really Pharaoh's fault. It's God's fault. The Bible doesn't let us go in this direction. It insists on the one hand that God is sovereign. Oh, he's sovereign over it and he's sovereign over a man's evil, but not responsible for it. And on the other hand, the Bible insists that people are only condemned because they freely choose rebellion against God. It is an uncoerced choice. It is freely chosen. It is willful. And to just show you this from just one verse, of course, we could go to many, consider Isaiah 53.6. Isaiah 53.6, somewhat famous verse. I'm just going to read the first part of it. It says, all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Now, last last part is very informative to us. We have all turned to our own ways, each man to his own way. No one forces him to do it. He chooses it. We choose it. We do what we want to do. Now, sometimes the circumstances are not exactly what we would choose, but in those circumstances, we do what we think is best, what we want to do. It is uncoerced. That is why the Bible condemns sinful choices and sinners. You chose it. You had a choice. You had freedom, and you chose sin. Now, another objection might be, well, if God sovereignly hardens Pharaoh's heart to disobey, then when God gives opportunity to Pharaoh to repent, that opportunity is really empty. That warning or that exhortation is really meaningless. God doesn't want Pharaoh to repent and be saved. He wants to display his wonders. If God really did want Pharaoh to repent, then he wouldn't have hardened Pharaoh's heart. God doesn't love Pharaoh, and so this offer for Pharaoh to repent is not genuinely meant. Now, some people actually do say this about God, that God doesn't want the non-elect to repent. God doesn't love the non-elect. This is really a form of hyper-Calvinism. And it's not biblical. The Bible does not allow us to go in this direction either. This may seem logical to us to a certain extent, but it's not biblical. Because despite the fact that the Bible is clear, God ordains sin and even the condemnation of sinners in his total sovereignty, God nonetheless desires all men to be saved and even appeals for men to come to him. Consider what God says to wicked Israel in Ezekiel 33.11. Ezekiel 33.11, God says via his prophet, say to them, As I live, declares the Lord Yahweh, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? Now this this may seem a little shocking to you because you say, wait a second, I thought God is sovereign. He does whatever he wants. Isn't that what Psalm 115.3 says? Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Isn't God pleased to ordain the destruction of the wicked? Well, yes, he is. Otherwise, it wouldn't happen. Then how can God say that he is not pleased in the destruction of the wicked in Ezekiel 33.11? The answer is because they're both true. You see, God's will or God's desires, they are truly single. And united. It's not as if God is schizophrenic and he's like, oh, do I want this or do I want that? God's not like that at all. He's totally united in his will. But there is a multifaceted appearance to it from, from our perspective. God is able to desire something which he ultimately does not fulfill because he has a greater desire which he has determined to fulfill. It is good, nevertheless, that he has this desire. And for a very clear example of this, consider the cross. Consider the whole event, Passion Week, and the cross. Did God desire Pilate to condemn an innocent man? Well, on the one hand, no. I mean, that's totally contrary to the justice of God. 
But on the other hand, yes, because it was going to bring about redemption. Did God desire the Jews and the Romans to crucify his only son? Well, yes, because it was going to accomplish redemption, but no, because he loves his son. How could he desire that for his beloved, only begotten son? And did Jesus desire to endure the wrath of the Father against sin on the cross? Well, no. And that's why he says in the garden, Father, if it's possible, take away this cup from me. I don't want to have any sort of breach or uh, effect on our fellowship, our loving fellowship. He didn't desire that. And on the other hand, he did because he went and did it. He said, not my will, but yours be done. Father, you've given these people to me. I need to redeem them. I want to do that. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, says Hebrews. So you see that it is possible, indeed it is proven through the scriptures, that God is able to desire something which he ultimately chooses for a greater purpose not to have fulfilled. I mean, we don't even, we could even just look at the world around us today. Consider how many people in the world today are not fulfilling God's desires. Every time we sin, every time someone rebels against God, that is leaving unfulfilled God's desire for people to turn to him and obey him. Yet God permits this, God ordains this, so that a greater desire of his may be fulfilled, which is that his, his sovereign will to glorify himself in both the salvation and in the condemnation of sinners will be accomplished. He is the sovereign king who has everything under his control. So bringing this back to Pharaoh, does God want Pharaoh to repent? Does he want Pharaoh to, re to repent and let the people go when Moses is sent to Pharaoh? Well, yes, God does desire Pharaoh to repent. This appeal is genuine from God via Moses. And on the other hand, in a sense, no, because God had ordained that Pharaoh would not turn and that this would justify God's display of wondrous judgment on Egypt. Now, if you're feeling like, whoa, those kind of concepts, they, they seem difficult to hold in your mind at the same time. Well, that's true. When you're talking about God, there's always going to be things like that. God's sovereignty, man's responsibility and freedom, those things, they have to be both present in your mind because they're both biblically presented. If you try and fully resolve how, all they, how they connect, if you try and say, oh, it's uncomfortable, I need to make this smooth. If you do that, well, then you're probably going to deviate from what the scripture says. There's going to be some tension and you have to be okay with that. This is what the Bible tells us about the sovereignty of God. And we see it again on display, even here in Exodus 11. Of course, many other places. And along with this, this whole idea of God's sovereignty, man's responsibility, and explains one of the prominent details of our passage. Why was Moses angry? What would you say? If we were to say, well, Moses, come on, don't you understand the sovereignty of God? He's hardening Pharaoh's heart. Why are you getting upset? I mean, this is, this is what you should expect. Well, then we miss something very important here. Moses recognizes the sovereignty of God, but he also recognizes the responsibility of man. He looks at Pharaoh, what Pharaoh's doing, and even the threat that Pharaoh utters against Moses, and he says, that is evil. That is ugly. That is terrible before God, and I hate it. This is a righteous indignation from Moses toward Pharaoh. It, he recognized what Pharaoh was do, doing was foolish and willful evil before God. So God's sovereignty does not absolve the responsibility of men for their evil. And indeed, it should call forth a certain emotional response from God's true people. And you know what? That's true today too. And not just when it comes to anger. My brothers and sisters, we should be stirred in our hearts when it comes to the when it comes to sin and when it comes to the state of sinners in our world. 
As my theology teacher once said to us, if we ever find ourselves coming to the place where we're okay with people just sinning, or we're okay with the fact that, oh, you know, God elects some to heaven and some to hell, you know, he's ordained that some will be eternally destroyed, and that's okay. If that, if we're just, if we become apathetic in our hearts to the plight of sinners, then there's something wrong with us. Because that's not the way that God is. God is not dispassionate towards those who are rebellious. On the one hand, he is angry against sinners every day, as the Psalms say. And we are to have a certain righteous indignation. And on the other hand, he is compassionate and pleading, just as we read from Ezekiel 33. God is not apathetic towards sinners, and neither should we be. Even if we were to know who the non-elect are, we shouldn't be like, oh, well, forget them. God doesn't care. No, God does care, and so should we. Consider Isaiah and Jeremiah, these two great prophets of the scriptures. They were ordained by God to speak his word to their people, call the people to repent, even though God said they're not going to listen to you. That didn't stop them from going. In fact, they were passionate in pleading with their brethren. I mean, Jeremiah, he says, if I don't say anything, it's going to be like fire in my bones. So if we find ourselves using God's sovereignty as a way to just not care about others, we've misunderstood. We have a terrible error in our thinking. I know Arminians complain about those who, who hold to the sovereignty of God in salvation. They say, oh, this is going to kill your evangelistic impulse. And it shouldn't biblically, but I fear that often it does. Because we say, well, you know, if God really wanted to save them, he would save them. So I don't know if we need to care. No, we do. If we have any sympathy for other people, if we understand the heart of God, if we know that, yes, God's sovereign, but man's choices are responsible, he shouldn't be so foolish or rebellious against God. If we're not seeing that at the same time, then we need to adjust our thinking. We need to come to a more biblical understanding of the connection between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Now, when we get to the end of chapter 11 and move into chapter 12, the text takes an interesting turn. That's where we're going next, because God is not only going to give a further, he's not only going to give further direction as to how Israel should prepare for the 10th plague, but he's also going to prescribe how that event will be celebrated from now on in Israel, even today, even in modern times. Look at Exodus 12, verses 1 to 28. Exodus 12, 1 to 28. We're going to look at this next section here. Let's see what God says. Now Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, they are each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. Now, if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbors, neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them. According to what each man should eat, you are to divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintels of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that same night, roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but rather roasted with fire, both its head and its legs, along with its entrails. And you shall not leave any of it over until morning, but whatever is left of it until morning, you shall burn with fire. Now you should eat it in this manner, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is Yahweh's Passover. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. The blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you live, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. 
and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now this day will be a memorial to you, and you shall celebrate it as a feast to Yahweh. Throughout your generations, you are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, but on the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats anything leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall have a holy assembly, and another holy assembly on the seventh day. No work at all shall be done on them, except what must be eaten by every person. That alone may be prepared by you. You shall also observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread. For on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a permanent ordinance. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month, at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. Seven days there shall be no leaven found in your houses. For whoever eats what is leavened, that person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is an alien or a native of the land. You shall not eat anything leavened, and all your dwellings you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and take for yourselves lambs according to your families and slay the Passover lamb. You shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood which is in the basin and apply some of the blood that is in the basin to the lintel and the two doorposts. And none of you shall go outside of the door of his house until morning. For Yahweh will pass through to smite the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, Yahweh will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to smite you. And you shall observe this event as an ordinance for you and for your children, ch children forever. When you enter the land which Yahweh will give you, as he has promised, you shall observe this rite. And when your children say to you, what does this rite mean to you? You shall say, it is a Passover sacrifice to Yahweh, who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians, but spared our homes. And the people bowed low and worshipped. And the sons of Israel went and did so, just as Yahweh had commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. Now here we have a longer set of verses, but let's observe a number of details. Notice that in verses 1 to 20, God gives Israel directions as to how they shall celebrate a certain memorial feast. But what's interesting is that the directions for celebrating this memorial are given before the event that it's celebrating actually happens. This event and this memorial will become known as the Passover. Notice the different stipulations for this feast. First, those that are ongoing. It is to take place at a certain time each year. The first month of the Jewish calendar, which would correspond to our roughly to March, April for us. And it will be from the 14th of the month to the 21st of the month. The Passover feast followed by a seven-day feast of unleavened bread. And during this feast, the people are to take an unblemished male, a year old, from the sheep or the goats, a lamb, and they are to kill it at twilight or evening on the 14th day. Now, evening uh, can be interpreted in a number of different ways. That word for twilight or evening towards the sun going down by Josephus's time, actually Passover lambs were being killed at about 3 p.m. But it would be before the sun had set, as the sun was going down. Now this slayed, this slain lamb is to be roasted and eaten along with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Not to leave any, any of the lamb over until morning. You were to burn any excess and you for the Passover and the unleavened bread feast, you are to remove all leaven from your house. In fact, if you don't remove it and you eat something unleavened, the text says twice, you will be cut off. Now, some people understand that to mean banished from Israel, but when you compare it to other passages, no, that means death. It would be put to death. Verse 15 and verse 19 give a very serious warning about even un eating leavened bread during this feast. And also verse 16 says, no work is to be done uh, on, on particular days except for food preparation. Now, these are ongoing stipulations for the Passover celebration, but there are some special ones given for this first Passover. In verse 7, it says, the people are to dip hyssop in the lamb's blood and spread it on the lintel and doorposts of the houses. So the lintel would be the, the top part of the doorway and the posts would be the side parts. So the entrance into the house, they're to put blood on the three sides of it. They're also to 
Eat in haste, according to verse 11. They need to be ready to go at a moment's notice. Have your shoes on, your clothes tucked in for travel, and your walking stick ready. And verse 22 says, no one is to go outside until morning. Now, why all these special directions? And why not go outside? Because of what Moses says next. Because of the judgment being executed by the one passing through. And who is passing through to execute judgment? Notice verse 13 and verse 23 say it's Yahweh himself. Yahweh himself is coming to destroy. He will smite the Egyptian firstborn, but when he notices the blood on the Israelite houses, Yahweh will not smite the families of those houses. Now, this is the first time, notice, this is the first time that Israel needs to do something, needs to have some kind of special covering in order not to be judged along with Egypt. God didn't require this for the other plagues, but he's requiring it now. Now, notice how long God wants the Passover memorial to last. Verse 24 says, this is for your for you and your children forever. This should be perpetual ordinance. And in verse 26, we get some clarification as to why they are to celebrate the Passover a certain way. Why those details? And namely, it is to facilitate the explanation to future generations of what God accomplished in that first Passover in Egypt. When God spared the Israelite firstborn. Now, to all these directions, notice Israel's response in verses 27 to 28. They bow low in worship, and they do exactly as God commands. With these observations, let's turn to interpretation again. Why does God give the directions for celebrating the Passover memorial before the event of Passover actually takes place? Why would God do that? Absolutely. This is, again, to emphasize God's sovereignty. He's saying, this event's going to about to take place, and you're going to remember it in this way. That shows that he's totally in control, and it's all happening according to his will. And by the way, this is not the only time that we see someone inaugurate a memorial celebration before the event being celebrated actually happens. There's a certain other time this happens in the New Testament. We'll come back to that a little bit later. Another question. Why is it significant that Israel needs protection, even blood covering, to be spared from this plague? Because, let's understand, it's not as if the destroyer, God or his agents, are incompetent or prone to unrestrained bloodlust. God is himself passing through to lead this operation He's the one destroying, so he's not going to be, he's not going to have error here. So why do the Israelites need to be protected from God's coming judgment? What would you say? Are the Israelites also worthy of judgment? They are, aren't they? All right, they haven't done what Egypt's done, but they're sinful people too. And this is going to become really clear once Israel leaves Egypt. <laughs> and God's going to say a lot about their need for covering when they get to Mount Sinai. But already we're seeing that here. He says, look, I'm going to show you, you need covering in order for you to be spared. I think that's what God's emphasizing here. They need blood covering by an unblemished lamb. Another question that comes up from this text is, why is God so serious about this leaven thing? Being cut off from the people of Israel? I think we all immediately want to say that the reason that God is serious is because leaven represents sin. It represents uncleanness, impurity. So when God is stressing to the people that they need to get rid of leaven from their houses, that he's saying that they need to be holy. They need to live in a holy way before God and to treat the Passover in a holy way. Now, it's true. The New Testament does sometimes use leaven as a metaphor, as a picture of sinful living or false teaching. However, the New Testament does use leaven positively, in one instance, to 
describe the spread of the kingdom of God. It's not always negative. And even in the Old Testament, this is kind of strange to realize, the Old Testament never links leaven itself with sin. It's not like God refers to leaven as being a metaphor for sin in the Old Testament. It never happens. Now, it's true, God does when he talks about the grain offering, and this is something we'll talk about a little bit later, the different offerings that God ordains for Israel. When he says, when the people are going to offer a grain offering, he says, you cannot offer anything with leaven in it, or with honey, or, um, and other things. But surprisingly, there is an ordained sacrifice by God that does call for leaven. In Leviticus 7.13, God says, if you want to offer a certain kind of thank offering, you need to offer it with leavened bread. I was kind of taken aback when I saw that detail. But it shows us that God doesn't have anything against leaven or even leavened bread in particular. I don't think we should see it as a symbol of sin, always. So why is God so serious about leaven here? I think the context gives us the answer. What Israel is experiencing in the Passover is going to require, in this first Passover, is going to require that they eat unleavened bread. And God says, I want you to remember that experience. I want it to be so fresh in your mind that you don't even have any leaven in your house. I want to make sure that you're eating unleavened bread when we go forward in the Passover. Because what I'm accomplishing is so great, it deserves to be seriously remembered and respected by you. When the people of Israel revere the Passover feast, they will be reminded of their need to meditate on and revere, in a sense, that original Passover deliverance, which should lead them to also revere and be reminded of the God who accomplished that deliverance. This is about properly remembering via memorial what God has done. And again, aren't there parallels to a similar celebration in the New Testament? that it is to be celebrated in a particular way. Now, there is more I actually want to say when it comes to how the Passover connects to the New Testament. But we're going to hold off on that in just a moment because I want to finish uh, the section that we're looking at today. Look at Exodus 12, verses 29 to 36. Let's see the 10th plague actually unleashed. Verse 29, it says, now it came about at midnight that Yahweh struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of cattle. Pharaoh arose in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was no home where there was not someone dead. And he called for Moses and Aaron at night and said, rise up, get out from among my people both you and the sons of Israel, and go, worship Yahweh as you have said. Take both your flocks and your herds as you have said, and go, and bless me also. The Egyptians urged the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we will all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, with their kneading bowls bound up in the clothes on their shoulders. Now the sons of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, for they had requested from the Egyptians articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing, and Yahweh had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have the request. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. We'll just say a few quick observations about this section. Midnight comes, and what happens? Verse 29, Yahweh struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the greatest family, Pharaoh, to the least family, man and beast, all the firstborn of Egypt are killed. And remember, we're not just talking about children here. Many firstborn boys, they grew up to be husbands and fathers. So assuredly, the male population of Egypt is devastated. A good portion of it is just cut down. And again, how appropriate, based on what Egypt tried to do to Israel and to their male offspring. But notice the great cry in verse 30. Not a single home in Egypt is spared from some kind of terrible death. Could you imagine being the Israelites, hearing this great cry, the shrieks of anguish, the wailing of bottomless grief? 
This was the terribleness of the judgment brought by God for Egypt's sin. Verse 31, the alleged God, the God-King Pharaoh, he admits defeat before the true God-King Yahweh. He tells Moses and Aaron, get your people, get your animals, and go. Notice a little phrase, though, at the end of verse 32. He says, and bless me also. Is that not an admission of powerlessness? The writer of Hebrews tells us in the New Testament, the lesser surely asks for a blessing from the greater. That's what Pharaoh is doing here. In verse 33, we see clearly the origin of the unleavened bread of the Passover feast. The Egyptians are urging Israel to leave as quickly as possible so the people, they don't even have time to get leaven or to cause their dough to rise. They got to just take unleavened bread. That's why it becomes part of the memorial. And then notice verses 35 and 36. Israel did as Moses commanded, as God commanded through Moses. They asked their neighbors for their treasures. And because God had granted Israel's favor, they got what they requested. He said, hey, you know, do you mind if I take this, this, gold, this gold jewelry? Or do you mind if I have this beautiful dress? And Egyptians like, just take it. Take it, please, and, and go. And verse 36 says, thus Israel plundered the Egyptians. And isn't this exactly what God had foretold? Back to Abraham, to Moses, even to Pharaoh. He said, this is what I'm going to do. And he brought it to pass. So now looking at this passage and, and all of the Passover account that we've just covered today, let's consider a few more questions of interpretation. First, what is the point? What is the point of this Passover account or even of all the plagues of Egypt? What is God saying? Was he not communicating to us who he is? He was showing Pharaoh. He was showing Egypt. He was showing Israel and he's showing us. Who is God? He is the I am, the self-existent one. He is infinite in power in holiness and sovereignty. And look at it on display totally in control, able to execute just mighty and terrible judgments on those who oppress his people and to effect in a mighty and marvelous deliverance for his people. This is who God is. He's showing that to us in this account. We also see here the origin of the Passover feast that is being explained. This is all meant to cause us, as it was meant to cause Israel, to have a holy fear of God, a reverence for God, but also to draw near to him as the one who is the only Savior. He delivers his people. Now, as we've been reading through the passages, and as I've already alluded a little bit, there's some important connections. There are some important connections between what we're reading here and the New Testament. How does the Passover connect to the New Testament? Yes, Steve. That's right, that's right. And we'll explore this in a couple of different ways, but the main point is that Jesus is our unblemished Passover lamb. There's a direct connection between the Passover and Jesus Christ. He, like the original Passover lamb, propitiated, provided covering and atonement for his people before God to protect them from his wrath. John 1.29 John the Baptist says of Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And people say, oh, is that a sin offering? Is that the Lamb of Atonement? Or is that the Passover Lamb? Well, it's all of them. Jesus corresponds to all of them in a greater way. Or 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. Peter writes, speaking of believers, knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood. As of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. He is our lamb, even our Passover lamb. 
And notice in the New Testament, Jesus uses the occasion of the Passover to inaugurate a new memorial. He actually discontinues celebration of the Old Testament Passover, and he says you were to celebrate something else instead. And one place we see this, Luke 22, Luke 22, verses 19 to 20. In that final Passover meal with his disciples, Jesus said, this is my body, which is given, to, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Not in remembrance of the Passover, but in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they'd eaten, saying, the cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This is because Jesus is our Passover lamb. He is a greater Passover. And he was slain at the time that the Passover lambs were being sacrificed. Now, there were two times that people were celebrating Passovers in Jesus' day. This is why Jesus celebrates the Passover with his disciples. And then the next day, there are still some Jews who haven't celebrated the Passover. And we see this in John, by the way. John 18, 28, when the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees and Sadducees, lead Jesus to Pilate. It says, it was early, and they themselves did not enter the praetorium so that they would not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. So even after Jesus had eaten the Passover, the next day there were some Jews who had not eaten the Passover. And when would those Jews be killing, slaying the Passover lamb for their Passover feast? Well, around three o'clock. And that's exactly the same time that Jesus would have given up his spirit on the cross. He is sacrificed at the same time the Passover lambs were because he is our Passover lamb. And then that text that Steve already noted, there's a consequence of this. If Jesus is our Passover lamb, the 1 Corinthians 5, 6 to 8, says that we ought to celebrate the feast, so to speak, by having an unleavened life. This is what Paul says there. And remember the context of 1 Corinthians 5, there was a man with gross, who was participating in gross immorality that the church had not confronted, not dealt with. And he explains it in terms of leaven. He says in verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, to all of this, you may be a little bit surprised because I'm very cautious in our class when it comes to identifying types in the Old Testament. I know that's often abused. And when I say a type, I refer to something that foreshadows or corresponds to Christ or some other New Testament reality. But I can safely say that the Passover and the Passover lamb, it does serve as a type. It does correspond to Jesus. He is a greater Passover. Now, I do want to be careful about that. I do not say that there is extra or hidden meaning in what Moses writes in Exodus 11 and 12, because you wouldn't be able to get that meaning from the, the context. That violates a basic principle of hermeneutics, which is the principle of single meaning. A text can only mean one thing, and that meaning is determined by the context. There's no extra or hidden meaning. Also, do not say that the Passover is a predictive type of Christ, because prediction means that you would have to be able to tell what that prediction was from the context, and you can't. There's, there's no predictive meaning in the Passover. You can't look at the Passover and be like, oh yeah, one day there's going to be a Messiah, and he's going to serve as a Passover lamb. You won't get that from Exodus 11 and 12. So the way I would describe it is that there is, as we see the New Testament, there's extra significance to the Old Testament. Meaning doesn't change, but now there's a new significance because we see a greater Passover. The Passover of God sparing the Israelite firstborn, it is a shadow of a greater substance, a greater Passover in which all of those who have faith in Christ participate. In a sense, Yahweh was hovering outside the houses of our hearts. He had his sharp sword poised, ready to strike us down for our sin, our stubbornness, our rebellion against him. But then the angel of Yahweh, who became a man, the God-man, Jesus Christ, he took his blood 
and spread it on the doorposts of the house of our hearts. And God says to himself, you must pass over this one. For I have paid his sins and I have clothed him with my perfect righteousness. That is a greater Passover. And it was accomplished by the death of Christ, suffering the wrath of God on the cross. Jesus spares us from the wrath to come. And not only that, he makes us, in a sense, firstborns. He makes us heirs with him of the kingdom to come. So that we may dwell with our great God forever. Israel dwelt with God, but not in the way that we're going to dwell with God. Now, brethren, this is a wonderful reality. But it is just as Paul says, it should lead us to a certain kind of life. It should lead us to live in an unleavened way. Now, I told you leaven is not sinful in itself, but it's being used as a metaphor by Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 to describe the new kind of life we are to live, not just personally, but corporately. Because remember, the context of 1 Corinthians 5 was sin in the church. It says, why are you letting this, un or why are you letting this leaven into the church? You need to deal with it. You need to be an unleavened church. That's true for our church, too. And, of course, that's true for us personally. We are not to allow leaven, so to speak, to continue in our lives. We are to celebrate in an ongoing way the Feast of Unleavened Bread because our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. And that means living a holy life, a life devoted to the Lord, loving him and declaring him. So you can see we're already getting into application now. So let me list a few applications for you formally. I've got three here. Help you to think about how to apply the text we've been looking at today and what we've been talking about today. First, wrestle to have a biblical view of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. There's so many different kinds of errors that can occur when we don't understand these things as they are presented in the Bible or when we try to fit together in a smooth way what the Bible declares. You can't do that. You have to accept what the scriptures say. Don't go off on one side or the other. Don't start relying on man's free will and say, all right, I need to do whatever I can, even if it means compromising the gospel message or compromising biblical priorities to get people saved. But don't go on the other side and use God's sovereignty as an excuse for sinfulness, for apathy. We need a biblical view of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Number two, make sure you are covered by the greater Passover. Only Jesus can save you from the wrath, of God, the wrath to come, the wrath of God. It's not Jesus plus works. It's not Jesus plus prayer. It's just Jesus to whom you become connected by faith. So in light of this lesson, you need to ask, do I really know him? Do I really follow him? Is his blood covering the doorposts of my heart? And connected with that, number three, live in an unleavened way, both personally and corporately. We need to hear Paul's analogy in 1 Corinthians 5. Those who have Christ as a Passover lamb need to live as celebrating the feast with him. But do you, or do we allow leaven into our lives, allow sin, unrepented sin in our lives or even into our church without dealing with it? Remember, the Israelites who carelessly left leaven in their houses during the feast, they were in danger of being cut off because if they ate something with leaven in it, God says you would be cut off from the people. God wanted them to be serious about how they celebrated the feast. And is it not true for us as well? Of course, we will not lose our salvation, but God says, I want you to treat your salvation inheritance seriously. It is a joyful reality, but be sober about it. As Paul says in Ephesians 4, you are to walk worthy of the great salvation inheritance that you have received. We are to do that as a body, as a church. So where has leaven come in? Where do we need to clean out that leaven? In our lives personally and in our lives as a church. What practical steps do you need to take to deal with that leaven? And you say, I don't know. Well, then get some help. Ask your elders. Ask the pastor. You can even email me. Ask another mature brother or sister at the church. We're meant to help one another in this area as well. Now, we're out of time for today. If you have questions or comments about what you've heard, about the passage or about the things I've spoken about, please email me. Next week, we see Israel actually leave Egypt. The exodus occurs. 
But God's not done with Pharaoh. God will move Pharaoh's heart one more time to harden it in such a way that God will accomplish one more mighty deliverance. And it will involve a body of water. I look forward to talking about that with you next time. Let's pray. Our God, thank you for being our Passover, for being the one who justifies. You are the judge, but you're also the justifier of the ungodly because of Jesus' sacrifice. Lord, you made us righteous, not because of anything in ourselves. Even now, God, we are not righteous the way that we ought to be. But positionally, we are because of Christ. You look on us and you see the righteousness of Christ so that we are acceptable to you. And we're going to dwell with you. Thank you. Thank you for saving us from your own wrath. Because you're a holy and righteous God. We deserved it. But you gave us Christ instead. Thank you for passing over us. Thank you for the blood of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, everyone. I'll see you again next week.